right, good morning, everyone. What's that? <laughs> good morning, everyone. I hope you're well. I hope you've had a good week. Lovely, warm, warm week. For like summer this week. <laughs> um, we're going to be in Luke 18 today. So I can get this mic on my ear. We're going to be in Luke 18. And uh, so we're going to be doing the whole chapter. Um, and hopefully it'll be a blessing to you today. I'll give you a moment just to turn there. So Luke 18. All right, let's begin. And he told them a parable to the effect that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He also told them a parable, this parable, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. 
Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, and who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these, these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is God's word. Amen. Uh, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would be with us today. I pray that you open our hearts and our ears to your word. I pray that you keep our hearts and our minds from distraction and from things that will take us away from what you wish to share from us, share to us. I pray that you bring all our hearts into submission to you and center them on you. As we come to your word in faith, by the power of the by the power of your Holy Spirit, please help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Um, the prophet Isaiah, speaking from God's perspective or God's point of view, once said, uh, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high, sorry, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Uh, we've called this, we've called the title of this series, I say we, <laughs> it's called Jesus, Humanity's Only Hope. Now I take the word hope there to mean the ultimate solution, the ultimate answer, the ultimate remedy for humanity. In all of us, there is some kind of expectation that there is something that can save us and bring renewal to our lives. And the Bible's central message is that if there is anyone or anything who can deal with our brokenness and our evil, both in our real everyday lives, but also as a big collective of human beings, it's Jesus. Now, again, the, the title is Jesus, Humanity's Only Hope, right? So I've wondered if you ever asked yourself, why is Jesus the only hope for humanity? Isn't that arrogant and narrow-minded and restricted? Some of my friends and my family and people that I meet uh, who don't believe in Jesus, they put their hope in other things that don't just seem reasonable, but they seem positive, they seem commendable, they seem hopeful. Maybe their hopes could also make a change. Why should Jesus be humanity's only hope? And I think the answer is that every other way, every other hope is too human. Every other hope is too human. Um, Kana, my daughter, she's three, going on four, and she's going through the kind of the why phase, right, where she's asking me loads of questions, asking me and Chloe loads of questions. You know, Daddy, why does the sun go down? Um, Daddy, why did God make the world? Daddy, why is that man's nails painted? <laughs> They're very, very tough questions. But the worst questions are when she asks me to define a word, All right? When she asks me to define a word. Um, she recently asked, you know, I won't say whether it was me or Chloe, but she recently asked one of us, what does possible mean? And one of us replied, uh, something that is possible, <laughs> right? <laughs> and obviously, Kana wasn't happy, happy with the answer because, you know, like that didn't help, isn't it? You know when people do that, if you, if, you, if you ask them for a definition of a word and they use the word in that definition, you, you know, you haven't helped. You've just stuck me in a loop of not understanding, right? And when we look at the world today and our lives, we know that something is deeply wrong with us, yet all our religious codes and all of our ways of life seek to offer hope that looks within humanity, right? Just as if... You know, when you give a definition of a word, using the word, you're stuck in a loop. In the same way, we are stuck in a loop 
of trying to fix broken humanity with broken humanity. You know, what are some of the solutions that we give to fix our world? Live moral lives through your human effort. Gain more knowledge to create more technology so we can fix what's wrong. Travel. Go on a journey of self-discovery and find yourself. Find your authentic self. Dig deep. Center your mind and body. Do yoga or Pilates or whatever it is. Center your mind and body and find the God within. Yet all of these answers don't bring us any closer to any kind of solution. These solutions only stick us within that loop of human evil. It sticks us in that loop of not being good enough. And we never get closer to any truth. Because all of our ways to fix the world and reach God are only projections of human imagination and relying on ourselves. And it's our natural instinct as humans to look within ourselves and think that somewhere in here is hope. Somewhere in my heart is hope. But it's not there. Why is Luke 18 in the Bible? Luke 18 is in the Bible to show us that despite our very best human intentions to save ourselves, we just can't do it. Despite our very best human intentions to save ourselves, we just can't do it. No amount of resources or our wisdom or our motivation or good works can justify us or ascend us to God or bring God's kingdom into our lives. In fact, our human ways actually take us further away from God and they take us deeper into ourselves. But Luke 18 shows us that true saving faith is counterintuitive. That means that it works against the human loop that we are stuck in. And Jesus is not stuck in that human loop. Rather, in Jesus, God, who stands outside of us, comes into our lives and becomes our hope. Jesus is the only hero of our story. He is the only savior. He sets us free from that natural instinct. And he shows us that we are best positioned for God to rescue us. Not for us to save ourselves, but we are best positioned for God to rescue us and bring us into a real relationship with him when we trust in Jesus with a humble, childlike, dependent faith. And so I kind of want to go through that with, under four headings, right? The first is true faith doesn't give up on God. The second Our goodness is bad and cannot save us. The third, God delights to give mercy to needy people. And the fourth, Jesus is our saving goodness. So we'll take it one by one. Uh, So the first is true faith does not give up on God, which is verse 1 to 8. Now the first section is about the parable of the persistent widow. 
Now, this section really is the end of what's spoken about in chapter 17, which is the previous section from verse 20. Jesus is talking about the end times, and he tells us, I think, three things at least um, about what the end times will be like. The first is, uh, you know, the religious leaders are the one who come to him and ask him, and they have certain expectations about what the end times look like. Uh, their idea is that God's kingdom is going to come to earth and it's going to smash the Roman Empire, uh, who, is, who, you know, who are their overlords. But Jesus says, God's kingdom is right in front of them. Jesus in himself embodies the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus is on the scene, that's where the kingdom of God is. The second thing is that he says when the end comes, it won't come in a way that we can expect, but it will be recognizable for all to see. The coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, will not be in line with human expectation, which is good news for some of us, because some of us might be end-time watchers, right? People who are always saying, always looking for what Christ might, you know, like what might signal the end times. Look, the credit card, that might be the mark of the beast. The US president is the antichrist. The vaccine is the mark of the beast. Jesus has come back on, you know, the 8th of July in 1996. But, <laughs> but Jesus said it's not, it's not going to be what we expect or what we can work out. But when it comes, we know exactly what's gonna, what is happening. We know that it will be Jesus' second coming. And so for some of us, you know, we need to know that them YouTube videos don't have all the answers. The third thing he says is that the kingdom will come when people are enjoying life and living life without a care in the world. Um, just like in Noah's time and in Sodom and Gomorrah, people were eating and drinking and marrying and planting trees, and building offices, and building houses. There will be a comfort, there will be a self-sufficiency that lulls people into thinking that all we need is here on earth. People will be stuck in that loop of being content and happy in themselves. And that's attractive to us, that's tempting for us. And so Jesus, in verse 32 of chapter, of chapter 17, says... Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will keep it. That is to say, don't get sucked into the false comfort of thinking that this world is just fine without God. And to keep us from being sucked into that, especially in light of his return, Jesus encourages us in chapter 18 to always pray and not lose heart, that is to not lose faith. And so that's the context of the parable of the persistent widow. And so a widow with no husband to protect her seeks justice from, an unself, from a selfish, unjust judge who only cares about himself. But despite him, she keeps coming and coming until he gives her justice. He then says to himself, She's coming so much that she might beat me up, right? So I need to give her what she wants. And so he does. Jesus' point here is that God is not like that. Jesus is not saying 
pray until you wear God down so that he gives you what you want. Some of us might believe that consciously or subconsciously. You know, we view God with a certain kind of suspicion. We might say that we believe that God is generous, but in our hearts we don't believe he is generous. We believe more that he, he has to calculate how he is not going to help us until he has to help us. He's begrudging, we might believe. Yet Jesus says God is completely unlike that judge. Jesus encourages us in verse 7 that God will bring justice to his people. He will do good to you without you having to twist his arm. Where the judge is unwilling to hear us, God is actually proactive and eager to do us good. And for many of us, we find that very hard to believe. But God will always do right by you. The question for us is, in verse 8, Will we stick around for long enough and believe him? When Christ returns, will he find faith? Or when things get difficult, will we give up faith? Will we lose heart and turn back to this dying world for our solutions? Now, in the context of the end times, we need encouragement in this area, right? People are always saying, you know, when, when I do evangelism, I'm sure many of us when we do evangelism, people are always saying, it's been 2,000 years. Where is that Jesus of yours coming back? And the question is really, are you still going to believe in a Jesus who hasn't come back yet? That's a question of faith. And it's a legitimate question. And sometimes it can make us feel flustered. But remember what Peter said in 2 Peter 3, from verse 3, he said, he said, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as, as they were from the beginning of creation. That's to say, life is, is carrying on as normal. There's no God. We don't need the idea anymore. But verse 8, it says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus hasn't returned yet, Precisely because God is kindly and patiently waiting with an open heart so people will trust in him. Everyone asks, you know, everyone says, when you die, right, why won't God give you a second chance? But God is delaying returning, and that is your second chance. But you refuse it. God is leaving the doors of heaven open for as long as possible so that many will come in. But perhaps some of us think, you know, I can deal with that end time stuff. That makes sense to me. I can understand that. I can trust God there. 
but it's more my own life. That's the problem. I've been seeking God. I've been praying for weeks, for months, for years. And God has not answered me. Why will God not give me justice? And the reality is that some of us are struggling with unanswered prayer. And I can really sympathize with that. Unanswered prayer can be difficult and confusing and frustrating. And ultimately, my answer to why God doesn't answer our prayers, well, in, 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 in some ways, is, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I can't say I know. But perhaps the point here is, is this. Is our answer to unanswered prayer to stop praying? Is our answer to unanswered prayer to stop praying? Because the question still remains, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? This is important because if our answer to unanswered prayer is to stop praying, that might mean that when our prayers aren't answered the way we like, and we truly learn that we are not God, our faith becomes unfaith. Our initial faith in God changes into unbelief. Right? Over time, we can grow bitter. We project our negative emotions onto God, and our view of him becomes so twisted that if you're not careful, you will twist God out of existence, like many people do. God has not answered me how I like. I said, I don't believe in him anymore. And sometimes that's because we think that the best answer to prayer is in our wisdom. That if God just did what I said, when I said it, the world would just be better. My life would be better. The alternative answer to unanswered prayer is to always pray and not give up faith. Why? Back to verse 7. God will always do justice. And that's a promise. Now this is, this is very difficult for us to understand. And it's, for some of us, I'm sure, will be very delicate. But justice does not mean that God answers all of our prayers in the way we would like. We do not and cannot know everything. Our solutions, our desires are at best short-sighted. But God does know all things. And God is too good to give us the steering wheel of the universe. Yet God patiently listens to us as we pray in our continuing distress. And he waits for the proper, the right, the just time to act. Um, Psalm, Psalm 89 verse 14, I think, says something that grasps the whole of this truth. And it's got two parts to it. The first part says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Which means God always does right. God is never wrong. 
God cannot be wrong. He doesn't make mistakes. The judge of our world will always do what is right and good to everyone. We are the ones who don't understand. We are the ones who change and shift. But God will always be God. And God will always be just. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. But the second half says, Steadfast love or loyal love and faithfulness go before you. So on the one hand, God is just and will do what is right. And, not but, and God is for you. And we should open our hearts to the fact or to the possibility that God will not answer your prayer as you want because he knows exactly what is best for you and is eager to do just that. God will only ever do right by you. God is not out to hurt you. God truly loves you. And his heart is that he loves you too much to give you anything less than what is true goodness and what is true justice. Even if you feel that the opposite is happening, right? Charles Spurgeon once said, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. And therefore, prayer, true prayer, is not the worldly way of treating God like a genie in a bottle who needs to do what we need to do, what we want. But true prayer is coming to God with the empty hands of faith, trusting that we will receive goodness from him. Prayer is placing trust outside of ourselves, outside of our answers, outside of our knowledge, and casting it on God because he cares for you. This is a a difficult one. Prayer is trust that God has already decided to do good to you and you don't have to make him do good to you. He is already good. All we need to do is approach God knowing that he is already on our side. We don't have to get him on side. He is already on our side. And when you feel like giving up and when, you like, and when you feel like you don't understand and you're frustrated and you're confused and, you know, you feel like you can't cope, Jesus invites you into the lap of the Father who loves you and tells you, pray and don't lose heart. And when we feel weak and we feel like we can't have that faith anymore, we should pray, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so true faith doesn't give up on God. The second heading, our goodness is bad and cannot save us. So uh, from verse 9 onwards, we enter into a new section. um, And Jesus tells us another story. And the story is designed for those who trust in themselves and their own goodness. 
and treat others with contempt. Two men go up to the temple to pray. <laughs> One is Pastor Ephraim. The other is a domestic abuser. <laughs> Pastor E stands by himself, lifts up his hands and says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. <laughs> Violent, unjust, adulterers, women beaters like this domestic abuser over there. <laughs> I planted a church. I run a school for disadvantaged youth. I share the gospel in, in Lewisham. <laughs> so, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but the domestic abuser stood far away. He stood outside the temple. He doesn't even try to come in. His heart breaks at the realization of his own evil, so much so that he can't even lift his head. He hits his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Which of the two go away justified? Now, nah, sorry. <laughs> I, I use Pastor E, not because he's a Pharisee, right? No, he's not a Pharisee. But because he's someone that I hold in, 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 in quite high honor, right? I respect him very highly. And so this is actually a compliment, not, not, not the other way around. When we read the Bible, the Pharisee, when we read the Bible, we see the Pharisees as the bad guys, right? But in their day, they were so highly respected. People looked up to them. And so the expectation at the end of the story is that the Pharisee is the one who is justified. Right? He's fasting twice a week, which is amazing self-control. Right? I know, I know, um, um, you know Pastor Rob does intermittent fasting, but fasting full, two full days twice a week is, wow. He gives to the poor more than he's required by the law. In their eyes, he is admirable. He is someone to look up to. But the tax collector is scum, right? He is, they looked at the tax collector how we might look at domestic abusers or um, sex offenders, perhaps. They were workers for the oppressors. Tax collectors were traitors, dishonest, greedy, corrupt. If there's any kind of person that deserves God's judgment, it's a tax collector. But the tax collector is the one who is justified. And this is a story that Jesus is telling. Why? Why is a tax collector justified? God is always ready to give mercy to messed up people when we call to him. But he closes his ears to those whose pride in their good works make them self-sufficient. The contrast in the story is not that one of them was good and the other was a sinner. They are both sinners. They're both on the same level. The real contrast 
is that one of them is aware of their need and the other is not. The truth that we struggle to understand today is that we can is that we cannot be good. We cannot be good enough in God's eyes. No matter what we do. We cannot be good enough in God's eyes no matter what we do. Why? We have all broken God's law. We've broken the law of the God who is there, right? We think we're okay people. I'm, I'm, just, just to say I'm including this, by the way. I don't say this as a kind of just you. But we, we think we're okay people. But God's word comes to us from the outside and it tells us there is none good, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is clear that no one is made right with God by trying to keep the law. For every one of us, there is some aspect of God's law, that is the Ten Commandments, that we have failed at. And if you say you haven't failed, then you just broke number nine. First John says, if we say we have no sin, there you go. We deceive ourselves and the truth is, truth is not in us. We have all broken God's law. Another thing is that your human goodness and my human goodness are not true goodness. Again, this is really difficult to grasp because everyone today thinks they are a good person. I mean, listen to this from, this is from an atheist society. They say, we believe that most people in the world, whether religious, atheist, agnostic, or just spiritual, are kind and peaceful by nature. They've obviously never been to South London. (laughs) Or they've never been anywhere. (laughs) You know, people might not run in your house every day with a gun to your head. But that doesn't mean people are good. People may open the door for you when you're walking into into somewhere. That does not mean people are good. The point pressed here in verse 9 is that human goodness goes bad. The very best of our human goodness at some point produces something ugly and tragic. Our attempts to be morally perfect actually lead us into evil. Think about that for a moment. Our attempts to be good lead us into evil. Our very best goodness causes us to be mean, to hate other people, to feel better than others. <clears throat> I mean, look at us in you know, you know, diversity and inclusion. Oh, we love everyone. We don't discriminate against everyone. But if you disagree with me, I'll stomp in your face and ruin your life. (laughs) I'm sure I don't have to tell many of you about how mean people can be in church. I've been to so many different churches and the pattern is always the same. The people who are the most holiest are the meanest, screwed-faced, judgmental people. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, even our love goes bad, right? Again, all we need is love. Our love goes bad. I mean, think about it with you know, parents and children. Par- a parent can spend years showering their kids with love and affection. And somehow it produces selfish, ungrateful children. Our own goodness literally produces evil, not even in ourselves, but it spreads to others. It's hopeless. Again, when we try to be good, we're so vulnerable to being bad. When we try to attain moral perfection, it often just shows that we're just liars and hypocrites. Because within us, our secret thoughts and desires that go against our own standards, let alone God's standards, and often we use our good works to hide that. But Jesus says this in Luke 16, he says, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Sorry, I didn't mean to be so hard hitting this morning. When we think we can be good in God's eyes, the interesting thing that happens is that we actually begin to ignore God and make ourselves the center of reality. This happens in verse 11. Again, the Pharisee, he starts his prayer with God once, and then the rest of his prayer is I, 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 like a record, like a record skipping. He basically goes to the temple and says, thank God for me. But the worst thing about self-trusting goodness is that it closes our hearts to God. The ruler who comes in, you know, who comes to Jesus in verse 18 to 30 has the exact same problem. Right? He approaches Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which means, what goodness do I need to achieve in my own strength to get me right with God? And although he says he's kept the law, which he hasn't, very obviously, you realize that when push comes to shove, we all want to be good in God's eyes until you find that one part of us that will never let God enter. Because that is what we really trust in. For the ruler, it was his riches. For some of us, for the Pharisees, it's their goodness. For some of us, it's our job or our family or a relationship. Our self-sufficiency closes us to God. Which is why it's hard for the rich for the self-sufficient to enter the kingdom of God because they will refuse to let the kingdom of God enter into them. Our world does not want Jesus because our world does not think, think it needs Jesus. And so God closes his ears to self-sufficient people because they close their ears to him. Our goodness goes bad. But this is another title now. God delights to give mercy to needy sinners and failures. Why is the tax collector or the domestic abuser justified? It's because God's ways are higher than our ways. 
God delights to show mercy to people who are aware that they are not good enough. It genuinely makes him happy. It makes him dance and sing to show mercy to evil people who recognize their need. In Luke 15 alone, there, there are around 10 references to joy and rejoicing and celebrating and dancing because sinners realized that they were sinners and sought mercy. God loves to show mercy to failures like us who constantly mess up because that is his very nature. When he reveals himself in Exodus 34, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We don't need to pretend before God that we have ourselves all together or that we're righteous or that we're good. You know, a pastor once said, before Jesus, all we need is need. All we need is need and an awareness of it. And the Lord will do his work. A theologian called Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are sinners, but it is the grace of the gospel which is so hard for the religious to understand that it confronts us with the truth and says, You are a sinner, a great and desperate sinner. Now come, as the sinner you are, to God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you alone. Our human ideas of God resist this. But God doesn't want you to get yourself together and then come to him. He just wants you to come to him. And when we come to him, not trusting ourselves, not hiding anything from him, because he already sees it all, he knows our evil more than we do, we can come to him openly and honestly by faith, holding on to nothing else. We come to him aware of ourselves, that we mess up badly, that we mess up embarrassingly, and we repent. We repent of our sins and we repent of our righteousness. We empty ourselves of the idea that we are good enough for him and we trust in Jesus. And God will always, always accept us. He wants you to come to him so that he can embrace you with mercy no matter your worst or most shameful sins. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. God wants you to approach him as his child. And I think that's the force of this whole chapter. 
in verse 17. God's kingdom and his love cannot be earned by us. You know, we wish to grow up one day and earn a wage or earn money. God's kingdom is not grown up into. It's received. It's not earned. It's received by us like a helpless child before a loving father. And that is in utter dependence, in needy expectancy, trusting only in our father's love and in nothing that we have because we have nothing. In the kingdom of God, there is only one adult, and that is God our Father. And the rest of us are just needy children. And God is a happy father with his arms full of children who he rejoices over. In Zephaniah 3.17, he says, The Lord your God is the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. It makes God happy to show mercy. And he shows mercy not to the strong, not to people who think they have it all together, but for the childlike, for the weak, and for the needy. Don't delude yourself into trusting in your own goodness or that riches or whatever it is that you trust in can save you. When we look for goodness or salvation outside of God, we will never be happy or at peace. Because as, as C.S. Lewis says, God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself. It is not there. There is no such thing. So Jesus loves to show mercy. God loves to show mercy to needy sinners. Now, Jesus Christ, our saving goodness. How can God give such undeserved mercy so freely? If the judge of this world will do justice, surely he can't forgive me and you just like that. Again, you know, Muslims, and I'd say people who are agnostic believe this. They think, you know, I'm going to live a good life. When I stand before God, I hope he's going to forgive me. But they don't realize that if that's the case, then that means God has to do away with justice. If God is a righteous judge, if he is a just judge, he cannot sweep our sin under the rug. He cannot leave the big debt that we owe unpaid. And so how is it possible that God can look on genuinely guilty people and forgive them? I think we see some of this between verses 31 and 34. Jesus predicts his death another time. And in his prediction, and in his actual completion of the prediction, in his historical death, Jesus shows us why he is humanity's only hope. Because what is impossible with man is possible with God. So remember, our goodness is not true goodness. It turns evil. It is limited. And when push comes to shove, we will choose anything above God. But where we have failed to keep God's law and to keep God's word, Jesus does everything right. In verse 31, Jesus says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man 
will be accomplished. So notice, Jesus obeys God proactively. They are intentionally traveling up to Jerusalem. He is determined to obey God, unlike us where we are not determined. Jesus Jesus obeys God's word completely. He goes so that everything that is written about the Son of Man will happen. We obey God partially. Jesus obeys God completely. Jesus obeys God with certainty. It's a guarantee. We're not sure if tomorrow, if push comes to shove, we will obey God. But what does Jesus say in this verse? He says, he doesn't say it might be accomplished. He says it will be accomplished. His goodness, unlike our goodness, stays perfect. We hold back from God, but there is nothing that Jesus wouldn't do to obey God. There is no limit to his obedience. Verse 32 and 33, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. Jesus knows exactly what obedience will cost him. Obedience will cost Jesus everything that frightens us. Everyone will turn away from him. He will be more hated than a tax collector. He will be physically abused. But he will be perfectly obedient until the end. His goodness does not go bad. And Jesus gains us free access to God without the support of human wisdom, the human wisdom that we trust in. Verse 33, and after flogging, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they, the disciples, understood none of these things. We want a savior who looks heroic. He looks heroic to the world and to our expectations. We want an untouchable Clark Kent. But our true hero is Christ on the cross. Jesus on the cross did not look successful. He looked tragic and forsaken. If you were there and looked upon Jesus on the cross, you would think he is no hope for us. He looked like the opposite of hope. He looked like disappointment. He looked like a failure. He looked like what we actually are before God. But God is not bound by our human expectations or our human wisdom. Remember, his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. Humanity's only hope does not fit within the loop of the human problem, but it is the complete opposite of what we are so used to trusting in. And it's exactly that that we need. In 1 Corinthians 1:18 to 25, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Christ on the cross would look foolish 
But in that moment, in the moment of, to our eyes, what was disappointment, was the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We trust in human wisdom and think that there is power in that, but there is only power in Christ crucified. Through the obedience and the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can be known by God as children and have real assurance of eternal life in God's kingdom because what was impossible with man is possible with God. The Lord Jesus Christ gives his obedience for our disobedience. The Lord Jesus gives his life for our life. And outside of him, there is no keeping God's law. There is no relationship with God. There is no hope for us. But in Jesus, we can trust that God is not against us. He is for us. We can persistently trust him, even when following him means that we follow him into the deepest and darkest valleys. In Jesus, we can stop living in denial that we are sinners. We can stop pretending and we can let go of our bad goodness and come straight to God with the empty hands of faith. And say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And there we can, we can find hope and assurance that nothing else we trust in can ever give us. Jesus Christ is the perfect son of God. He is our older brother who brings us into God's family picture. It's because of Jesus that God's arms are filled with children that he loves and cares for and he hears. We are not people like the widow with no defense, but we are children of God through faith in Christ. And all we need before God is our need. Just like a blind beggar. In the last section from verses 35 to 40, Jesus is traveling, again, going up to Jerusalem, and there's a blind beggar on the street. And the beggar is under no illusion that he can do anything for himself. He knows he is hopeless. He hears the crowd moving and says, what's going on? Jesus is passing by. And he doesn't say, maybe I can impress God with how good a person I am. Maybe I can impress God with my good works. He doesn't delude himself and think, maybe I don't need Jesus. I get money, you know, people throw their money at me or their bread at me. I get food here and there. It's good enough for me. 
He doesn't say that. He knows that despite every other option, every other hope, Jesus is his only hope. And he cries out, Jesus, have mercy on me. And everyone tells him, be quiet. But he cries out again and again. And notice that word, he cries like a needy child. Unless you are like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And what does Jesus do? Jesus stops and brings him near. He gives him his full attention and is happy to respond to him because of his needy faith. Again, Jesus is happy to show mercy to people who recognize their need. And he heals him. Jesus encourages us towards a faith in him that is needy, that is persistent, childlike, and dependent on him. Let go of your righteousness. Let go of anything in this world that you trust in or anything that makes you think you can earn God's favor. And let Jesus be your only hope because Jesus is your only hope. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our only hope. Help us to not trust in any righteousness of our own. Our righteousness goes bad. It's not true goodness. Help us, Lord, to recognize our need and to know that we are guilty sinners before you. We carry true moral guilt. Help us, Lord, to come before you, needy, persistently crying out to you again and again because you are our only hope. May we not trust in anything else or in anyone else. May we not trust in ourselves, but help us to be needy towards you because you hear us and you will respond to us in mercy and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.